You're listening to the voice of the future, fighting for America every day. This is the conservative crusader. And here's your host, GOP Josh. Hello and welcome to the Conservative Crusader. My name is GOP Josh. Thank you for tuning in here on the Red Future Radio Network. A lot to get to today. A very jam-packed show. Let me give you a quick synopsis of what we're going to talk about today. President Trump threatens to sue the Pulitzer Board if the New York Times and Washington Post prizes are not rescinded for their fake reporting in the 2016 election and his collusion with Russia hoax. We have some Ohio news. But before that, we had Nancy Pelosi's husband, Paul, killed his brother in a joyride crash 65 years before his trunk, his drunk driving accident. In our Ohio segment, Ohio Secretary of State candidate is declared guilty of election law violations. The Governor DeWine is invested in intel, so he has another um, initiative, another goal with his intel deals to give him more money. He won't say how much he has invested into the company. And the Ohio legislative primary is set but they don't know how to pay for it. It's a major problem with our current primary system, how we split it up into like three different elections, two different elections. They don't know how they're going to pay. They don't know how they're going to pay for the ballots. They're going to pay for the poll workers. They're going to pay for the locations. That is a major problem we're going to get to in the latter half of the show. But first, we have some news about the Supreme Court. Texas passed a bill aiming to keep social media platforms like Facebook and Twitter for censoring users based on their viewpoints, the Supreme Court has blocked said law. Chief Justice John Roberts, uh, Stephen Breyer as well, Justices Breyer, Sotomayor, Kavanaugh, and Coney, Coney Barrett voted to grant the emergency request from two technology industry groups that challenged the law in federal court. The majority provided no explanation for its decision, and is commonly, as is common in emergency matters on what is informally known as the court's shadow docket. Clarence Thomas, Samuel Alito, Neil Gorsuch, and Elena Kagan even would have allowed the law to remain in effect. In dissent, Alito wrote, quote, social media platforms have transformed the way people communicate with each other and obtain news, unquote. It's not clear how the high courts pass for some cases, many of which predate the internet age, apply to Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, and other digital platforms. Alita wrote an opinion joined by fellow conservatives Thomas and Gorsuch, but not Kagan. Let's break this down first. So we have this law, which I haven't actually read. I'm going to be honest, I didn't read the, the full bill. But the general synopsis, it's not like they don't say gay bill, the general synopsis about the bill is actually being fairly reported from what I can understand by the mainstream media. It would aim to keep social media platforms from censoring users based on their viewpoints, which shouldn't be a problem at all. It's a free speech issue. And I don't think the court should just stop the law before they actually review it and before they go into it and and see if it's fair or not, right? But the breakdown to me is even more interesting. There's Sotomayor, uh, Breyer, who is retiring, and Kagan, who is on the liberal court. Breyer will be replaced by... Katanji Brown Jackson. But the makeup actually has Breyer and Sotomayor on the same side of the issue, on the same side of, of stopping this law right now. But Kagan, Elena Kagan, decided to uphold the law and actually keep the law in effect. Likewise, Thomas Alito and Gorsuch 
went against John Roberts, Brett Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett on the conservative side. The latter three, Roberts, Kagan, and or, Roberts, Kavanaugh, and Barrett, I'm sorry, voted to suspend the law and put it on hold until it is fully read into, so to speak, fully analyzed, so to speak. And then Thomas, Alito, and Gorsuch took the right effect, the right side, and would have allowed the law to stay into effect. So this is the big part of here. This is the big part here. It's not clear how the high courts passed First Amendment cases, many of which predate the internet age, apply to Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, and other digital platforms. I think it's pretty obvious how they apply to other platforms. I think it's pretty obvious how First Amendment applies to Facebook, how First Amendment applies to Twitter, applies to TikTok, applies to Instagram, applies to even Truth Social and Gab and Getter. If your social media platform is acting as the public square and you have the protection from the government to allow it to run like the public square, like Twitter, if someone puts on their Twitter page, they're going to do a crime. If they're going to do a, a I'm going to go rob this store, and they go out and, and do that crime, they are not held liable in the eye of the law. That is, that's plain and simple. I think that's pretty well known. As long as they have their protections they have, they're not held liable for what's posted on their platform because they're the public square. But they decide to act like a publisher. They are acting like a moderation platform, like they are like the, the Washington Post, who are at the Washington Post ran an op-ed that said, this person is going to rob this store at this time on this date. And they allow it to run in their newspaper. They would be held liable for that, for broadcasting crime and, and, and promoting crime. So they have to work as a publisher to root out what they should and should not have on their website, on their paper. Social media is the modern public square. The moderation platforms that are put into effect by Instagram, by Twitter, by Facebook, by TikTok are making it act like a publisher, are making them act like they are running a newspaper. And they don't want to be held liable for what happens and what gets published and what gets promoted in these newspapers, what gets promoted on their platform. So they decide to censor. This law by the Texas General Assembly that passed, and I'm pretty sure was signed into law, would have prevented that. I applaud that law. I don't applaud the Republican majority Supreme Court, the conservative majority for Supreme Court for allowing that to fall. Because free speech is free speech. If you run a social media platform and you don't want people to speak their mind on your platform, run a newspaper, open a newspaper, open a, a news site. There's a difference the people running these platforms have to know that. And the people signing these bills into law and the people who are striking these bills down in the court also have to know that. Another thing that happened on Tuesday, yesterday, the Supreme Court 
temporarily blocked the counting of some mail-in ballots in Pennsylvania. An order that could affect the tight Republican Senate primary between former hedge fund CEO David McCormick and Dr. Mehmet Oz. An order from Justice Samuel Alito paused a lower court's ruling in a lawsuit over a disputed 2021 local election court that would have allowed the counting of mail-in ballots that lacked a handwritten date. Um, A court election disputed that issue, and they allowed it to count the ballots without a handwritten date. The third U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals in Philadelphia had ruled the state's election law's requirement of a date next to the voter signature out of the return envelopes was immaterial. Based on that ruling, the state had advised counties to count those ballots in the race between McCormick and Oz. As McCormick scrounges for ballots to make up the gap with Oz, Alito's order could freeze a separate federal lawsuit in Pennsylvania in which McCormick is fighting to to force counties to stay on the ballot. To count the ballots, I'm sorry. The high court actions called an administrative stay freezes the matter until the court can give a further consideration. I believe that's the same thing that's happening in the law with Texas. And I actually applaud the Supreme Court for this decision. Ballots that do not I don't think mail-in ballots should be counted at all. I don't think that mail-in ballots should be what we use to vote. But if they are, they have to have strict protocol. They have to have strict requirements. They have to have a signature. They have to have a date. The requirements put in place are put in place for a reason, is to have these mail-in ballots to be somewhat secure, even though we know they're not, but somewhat secure. And that shouldn't be able to be trampled over because you're losing, and that's what David McCormick wants. That's, That's... As soon as Dr. Oz took the lead by about 900 votes and David McCormick saw there weren't very many ballots left, he came out and said, we need to count these mail-in ballots. These people should have their voices heard. Expecting these fraudulent mail-in ballots to vote in favor of him. And that's his way of trying to win and trying to take out Dr. Mehmet Oz. But Dr. Mehmet Oz will probably be the Republican nominee. And people are saying, well, well, Josh, Doug Mastriano, will, who, who is the governor candidate, will take down the Republican vote. Not very many Republicans will come out and vote for Doug Mastriano. He's an election conspiracist QAnon guy. And they're going to support for us. They're, they're going to support a celebrity heart doctor from New Jersey. They're going to support someone who publicly went on the record and said they support Roe v. Wade. They think Roe v. Wade should be law and should stay in place. They're going to go on the record and, and, and support this guy? In Philadelphia. And I saw women who'd had coat hanger events. Mm. I mean, they're really traumatic events that happened when they were younger, be, before Roe versus Wade. And they, many of them were harmed for life, emotionally discarding anyway. Right. And listen, I, I'm at a personal level, I, I wouldn't want anyone in my family to have an abortion. I, I told my kids this. I mean, I, I love the, the I love the lives that they're creating so much that I, that I personally wouldn't want it, but I don't want to interfere with everyone else's stuff because it's hard enough to get into life as it is. That's the guy. And I know people say, "Well, you can't rail against Republicans after the primary." We're conservative in the primary. We're Republican in the general. I'm conservative all the time. My loyalty isn't to the Republican Party. My loyalty isn't to a political party, isn't to a politician, isn't to a, an organization at all. 
I mean, it, it's that simple, right? That, that's my thought is my loyalty isn't with the Republican Party. My loyalty is with America. My loyalty is with conservative values. And Dr. Oz will stop more Republican voters from getting out than Doug Mastriano will. So he will probably be the winner of this, unfortunately. That's what happens when President Trump meddles in even another election without knowing the right candidates, without knowing the right people to back. But, you know, it is what it is. His handlers will say whoever they support. So, you know, it is what it is. We can't change it now. Good luck for Pennsylvania. When we return on the second segment... We will talk about more about Nancy Pelosi's husband's DUI as well as Trump's threat sue uh, threatening to sue the Pulitzer Prize board when we return here on the Conservative Crusader. Stay tuned. You're listening to the Conservative Crusader. This is the Conservative Crusader. Welcome back. This is the Conservative Crusader. So we've been following the story. First off, follow me on social media at GOP Josh 20 on Twitter, on Instagram. Parlor, Telegram, Truth Social, Gab and Gatter is at GOP Josh. We've been following the story here on the Conservative Crusader on the Red Feature Radio Network about Paul Pelosi. About how He had the DUI over the weekend, how he got in a car accident in his 2021 Porsche, or Porsche, however you pronounce it, I don't really care. Well, this isn't the first time he's been in a joyride crash. The first time he's been in a car accident that led to an accident, that led to possible injuries. Obviously, it wasn't an injury now. But when he was 16 years old, Paul Pelosi killed his brother David in a car accident. And 65 years before the drunk driving accident. A 1957 news article. Let's see. Pardon me. Let's see what we can read here on this old newspaper from the San Francisco Examiner. A 19-year-old San Francisco youth died in an overturned sports car south of here early Tuesday. Early, uh, yeah, early yesterday, probably strangled with a brace. He wore to support a neck fracture from a swimming mishap. David Johnson Pelosi, David John Pelosi, I'm sorry, 19 of the address, son of John Pelosi, a wholesale druggist, was trapped under the light car driven by his brother when it flipped over on Skyline Highway a mile north of Crystal Springs Dam at 2.40 a.m. He was dead on arrival at Mills Memorial Hospital and San Martino. Paul Pelosi was 16. He received a misdemeanor manslaughter charge for his... Um, problem with his brother for, for his brother dying in the accident. A misdemeanor charge when you were 16 years old for manslaughter. Uh, David, his brother, was wearing a neck brace due to an, energy, in, an injury he got from diving into shallow water, according to the news report I read to you all. So you have a history. Paul Pelosi has this history of of not being the safest driver. And I'm not saying that he should not be able to drive 65 years after one accident, right? But you know yourself. He knows how he drives. He, He had an accident. He killed his brother, which is traumatizing. 
he has $120 billion or million dollars, why doesn't he get an Uber? Why doesn't he have a dedicated driver? He could pay a driver $100,000 a day and have plenty of money left over for every time he goes out and gets drunk at the vineyard and he wants to drive somewhere. They're not hurting for cash, and he knows he's an irresponsible driver. He knows this has happened before, unless he has dementia like Pelosi herself and like Biden himself. He knows this could happen. The threat is there. And the negligence caused to cause this accident is severely, severely inappropriate. For anyone, not just because he's a politician, but or not because he's a politician, but because his wife is a politician. If this same thing happened to Donald Trump or Melania Trump in that matter, I'd be saying the same thing. It's severely irresponsible to put others at risk because you want to get drunk and drive. Severely irresponsible. And I, 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 I shame him. I am putting my shame on Paul Pelosi to put this 2014 Jeep driver, if you missed yesterday's episode, that's the driver that he got in an accident with, putting him and his passenger at risk. But also because knowing that he has this history, knowing that he has killed someone behind the wheel before. And he doesn't take it upon himself to get a driver to get a chaperone to stop him from driving drunk, to stop him from getting in this accident is severely irresponsible. It was preventable. So, President Trump threatens to sue the Pulitzer board, the Pulitzer Prize board. I'm, I'm going to hit on that story probably a little bit every day for the next couple of weeks because we can't let it go out of the news cycle. We can't let it just get, get sweet behind the rug, sleep under the rug. We can't let it happen. But Trump has threatened to sue the Pulitzer board if the New York Times, Washington Post prizes are not rescinded. Former President Donald Trump threatened to sue the Pulitzer Prize board if they do not revoke the prizes awarded to the New York Times and the Washington Post over their reporting that fueled the hoax that Trump and his campaign colluded with Russia in the 2016 presidential election. In In a letter dated May 27th but released Tuesday, Trump wrote to the Pulitzer Prize Administrator, Marjorie Miller. There is no dispute that the Pulitzer's board award to those media outlets was based on false and fabricated information they published. The continuing publication and recognition of the prizes on the board's website is a distortion of the fact and a personal defamation that will result in the filing of litigation if the board cannot be persuaded to do the right thing on its own. In light of additional recent evidence that the articles for which the prize was awarded contain an introvertedly false information that misled the public, I again call on your organization to maintain its own credibility by, credibility by rescinding that prize to the New York Times and the Washington Post. The story that led to Russiagate, that led the, the perspective of Russiagate, that led that Trump is a Russia colluder, yada, 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 that that take, right, that that myth caused irreversible damage to Trump's name. Go to any sort of Trump family's Twitter. Let's go to Eric Trump because I feel like he probably have some. I don't see a lot of Eric Trump's tweets if he tweets a lot. This is something from 
6.43 yesterday. Let's scroll here. Let's see here. Oh, there's one. I have a picture of President Trump next to Putin. Photoshopped together about how terrible the Republican Party is, how how Trump has Russia connections. I can't, I can't really see that many. Most of it's just people actually responding to the tweet. I guess he's not high enough in the Trump family for that. But the amount of things you see that are talking about how Trump has Russia connections, how Trump is owned by Russia, how Trump is a business partner of Vladimir Putin, how you hear that. How you hear that and it's irreversible. It's irreversible. To his character. And allowing this prestigious award, this this Pulitzer Prize to continue being published on their website, continue being recognized for this false reporting is irresponsible and it's inappropriate. So I applaud President Trump for what he said, for trying to stand up for accurate information in the press, as will Red Future Radio, by the way. We will will stand up for accurate press reporting as well and accurate reporting of the news here on the Conservative Crusader on the Red Future Radio Network as well. But we're not going to go to a break yet. I might just do everything in one quick batch. If you want to read the whole letter, I'm pretty sure it's attached here in this Breitbart story. The links are in the show notes below. We have a story from the Ohio Press Network, which is one of the greatest news information outlets in Ohio. Jack Windsor does a great job over there. His staff does a great job over there with the Ohio Press Network, spreading the truth without a agenda. Jack Windsor personally is a conservative person. You can tell that by how he posts on social media, how he says what he says. But his news reporting is fair and balanced. And I think even leftists can look at that and be like, yeah, I agree with that, or I I disagree with that, but I can see how he reported that, right? So he does a great job at that. I I applaud him for that. But there is a big, a, a big story out of the Ohio Press Network. The Ohio Secretary of State candidate, one of the candidates, one of the the Democratic nominee, declared guilty of election law violations. Three new election law violations were handed to Democrat Secretary of State candidate Chelsea Chelsea Clark during a May 19th Ohio Elections Commission hearing. Trevor Knapp, who issued the complaint, told the commission, quote, I bring this complaint because it is very important we hold elected officials and those seeking higher office to account when it comes to this sort of campaign finance rules and regulations. The allegations against Clark included, included improperly establishing committees, filing certain reports late, disclaimer violations, keeping an appropriate accounting, and not having correct designation of treasurer name. Um, Micah Camrus, representing Chelsea Clark, defended the current Forest Park Councilwoman and said, quote, many of the allegations are not supported by law, and a couple of those that were issues, they were very brief and remedied in less than one day. In 12 minutes' time, the OAC discussed and voted 6-0, finding Clark guilty on filing an improper designation of treasurer, keeping improper records of of expenditures, and using incorrect disclaimers on campaign materials. She was fined $500. That's a whole lot for a statewide campaign, right? (laughs) The second fine to be handed to Clark, she paid a $250 fine in September 2021, being found guilty of three violations, though one was withdrawn. 
It's understandable that candidates and campaigns make mistakes, but Chelsea Clark is a chronic offender of state election laws, said Adam Rapian, campaign manager for current Secretary of State Frank LaRose. The fact that Ms. Clark is running for the Ohio chief elections officer, I find very problematic that she has six prior negative findings from this commission that said Knapp during the hearing. OEC did not discuss the six prior findings, but did previously mention her history as an elected official, which means that the following election guidelines is not a new requirement. Rappian said, quote, Clark's campaign had been accused of at least nine times of campaign finance and disclosure violations, including referrals to the Ohio Elections Commission in 2015, 2018, 2019, 2020, and again in 2022. The OPN contacted Chelsea Clark requesting comment, but as of the publication deadline, the Ohio Press Network did not receive a response. This is a candidate who is running for the statewide office, the Secretary of State statewide office, and she's running to be in charge of elections, to be in charge of these kind of things. She's running to watch the campaign finances, to watch over the ballot boxes, to draw, to watch over campaigns and make sure their, their signatures are valid. And, and all of these jobs, all of these positions, all of these important things that come with the position of Secretary of State. It's not just an easy job. It's not just a walk-in. Well, if you do it right, it's not an easy job. But Frank LaRose, it's pretty easy for him. But she can't seem to follow the law. She can't f- seem to follow state law, state campaign finance law. And she's running for this position. I mean, that should be disqualifying right away. If you can't do proper disclaimers, you know how long it takes to do a proper disclaimer? I could probably do one live while I'm talking to you, and I'm, I'm not good at talking and reading at the same time, but I'm going to do a proper disclaimer. Let me go to my conservative crusader headquarters, or not headquarters, but my headshot photo thing. I'm going to put a rectangle out on Photoshop here. I know you can't see it, but I'm commentating as I do it just to tell you how easy it is. I'm going to do a little stroke around it so it's like a inside of the box. You can type in it, make that a little bit bigger, about six points there. And let's do paid for by GOP Josh. Let's put that in the box. Let's make this smaller here. Shrink it down here. It fits in the box perfectly. And we have a disclaimer on this post saying that I paid for it myself. Did someone time me? Did someone go back and, and, and give me a stopwatch and see how long that took? And obviously there has to be more, more requirements than that for campaign finance law, but it, it, it doesn't take that long. You also how fast I did it. I, I talked while doing it, and I, I can't show it to you, but this looks like a, a professional campaign paid for by um, Rectangle. You know the little rectangle they put on the bottom of the yard signs and everything like that? Yeah, this, this looks right. It looked like this could be a campaign ad. And if I run for office, it'll probably be a campaign ad because I'm not going to stop the show if I ever run for office, right? Uh, if the show's still going to that point. But the fact that she can't do something that simple immediately disqualifies her from the Secretary of State's position. I'm not excited about any statewide candidates in Ohio this election. I'm not excited about J.D. Vance. I'm not excited about Frank LaRose. I'm not excited about Dave Yost. I'm not excited about Mike DeWine especially. And Mike DeWine, for one major reason, actually two major reasons, I haven't actually talked about that story yet. We're going to have to talk about another story I didn't even throw in there at the beginning. This is going to be a long show, folks. Dive right in, because we have two big corruption stories in the DeWine-Houston camp. But before then, if my schedule is correct, I should be having 
candidate for Ohio Governor Neil Peterson on the podcast on Saturday, I believe it'd be June 11th. Yes, Saturday the 11th. I hope to have him on. So if you have any questions for him, if you have any questions to for me to ask him to bring up with him, please email me, josh at gopjosh.com, or you can send in a voice message. Go to anchor.fm slash theconservativecrusader or gopjosh.com slash show. Click on the message or the voicemail button, respectively, and put in the title question for N-I-E-L Peterson, P-E-T-E-R-S-E-N. That's his name there. You can put that in the box there. But but we have to talk about this story. Governor Mike DeWine is invested in tech company Intel. He's put his own money where his mouth is and invested in Intel. But we're going to talk about that after the break here on the Conservative Crusader. Be right back here on the Conservative Crusader on the Red Feature Radio Network. Stay tuned. You're listening to the Conservative Crusader. This is the Conservative Crusader. Welcome back. This is the Conservative Crusader. I try not to make my segments longer than 15 minutes. Is why we took a break there here on the Red Future Radio Network. But Ohio is currently negotiating. This is another story from the great work of the Ohio Press Network. As Ohio negotiates almost a $2 billion incentive package with electronic chip maker Intel, Governor Mike DeWine owns stock in the company, according to ethics disclosures that were due on Monday. However, the governor declined to say how much of the investment is beyond the very general information that is required under Ohio ethics law. Intel in January announced that it would invest at least $20 billion in central Ohio to build two chip plants and create about 3,000 jobs. Great news in a state where the economy has lagged behind the national average. But some, including Policy Matters Ohio, have raised concerns that a $1.9 billion incentive package is front-loaded, leaving taxpayers vulnerable if Intel doesn't live up to its promises. Act in March of, asked in March about those concerns, DeWine Press Secretary Dan Tiersney pointed out that $650 million is conditioned on the job creation and won't be paid unless they don't materialize. He also said that some of the infrastructure work in the incentive package will be financed by local governments. But he didn't add, but he didn't address what, in the event the project goes bust, the administration will do to claw back a $600 million reshoring grant or $150 million from Jobs Ohio. With so much money at stake, taxpayers might want to know what the representatives at the negotiating table have only their interests at mind, but DeWine's ethics disclosures have made it seem impossible to know for sure. Under Ohio law, government officials such as DeWine every year have to disclose every company in which they owned at least $1,000 worth of stock during the previous year. Knowing DeWine has more than $1,000 worth of Intel stock doesn't tell you much. Could just be a normal investment or could be a big play that might give a motive to help Intel do well that conflicts with the best interest of Ohioans. So let's see here if it talks more about that. Tiernsney, the press secretary, was asked about how much Intel stock DeWine owns. Tiernsey said, the governor has held Intel stock since well prior to his term as governor. As you are aware, the governor has disclosed this pursuant to financial disclosure and ethics laws. The governor has followed these laws and is in compliance with them. Um, Press secretary was also asked if the governor viewed his Intel ownership as a conflict. He said, quote, Intel has sought economic development in Ohio. The incentives are with the the Department of Development and Jobs Ohio, not the the governor's office. Intel has not sought a stake 
has not sought a state spending contract for services. DeWine appoints both the Board of Jobs Ohio and the Director of the Department of Development. So, So we have here a governor currently serving, not a candidate for governor, but a, but a currently serving governor who owns stock more than $1,000 worth until stock share. Let's see. It's $44 a share right now, by the way, just, just to put that out there. He owns 44, or I'm sorry, he owns at least $1,000 of Ohio stock, or of Intel stock. I'm sorry, I keep looking at the, the headline of the story. And he's giving them a $2 billion taxpayer-funded incentive to come to the state of Ohio to bring their jobs, to bring their whatever else. Does that seem like a conflict of interest to you? Does it seem like the sitting governor of the state of Ohio bringing in a company that they own a large share in to build jobs and to give them taxpayer funded is is a conflict of interest to you? Do I believe Intel will do a great job as a, as an Ohio partner possibly, you know? We we really have no way to tell. We really have no way to tell, but I, I do know that if you're going to bring a company into the state of Ohio and you own share in that company, you have two different interests at, at your heart. You have your own money, and then you have the state of Ohio. And I hope that Mike DeWine's interests don't come before the state of Ohio, but knowing Mike DeWine, I don't know him, but knowing what he's done, hearing a lot about Mike DeWine, I don't see that happening. I see his interest coming first. And this is kind of an open-ended question for you, but have you ever heard of a public official taking a private job while they're still in office on a bank board? Because Lieutenant Governor Houston has joined a bank board, and he is still in office. Lieutenant Governor John Houston said he doesn't have a conflict of interest as a new board member of an Ohio bank that's regulated by the administration of which Houston is a part. Despite his, the denial, the new side gig is likely to add the ethics question about an administration that has already had its share of scandals. So this is uh, the Ohio Capital Journal wrote this piece. Cleveland.com broke the news that Houston has joined the board of Heartland Bank, a central Ohio-based institution that is talking, talking up to its expansion into Cincinnati and northern Kentucky. Houston and the DeWine administration made no announcement when Houston joined the board in March and only became public when the bank made an announcement last week, the paper reported. Uh, the press secretary has no comment. Houston won't say how much this bank is paying him to serve on their board. The position is compensated and will reportedly be appropriately uh, will be reported appropriately on his financial disclosure. Houston spokeswoman Haley Cardusi said in an email. He gets $176,000 from his taxpayer funded salary. DeWine appoints the director of the Ohio Department of Commerce, which regulates banks. And now a member of the administration, the number two guy in the administration is currently 
involved in a bank that will be regulated under this this board. The Department of Commerce has to approve bank mergers in an arena where Hart, which Heartland has a clear interest. It's plausible that if the department considers another merger application from Heartland, its staff might pull punches in the knowledge that number two official in the, in the DeWine administration sits on the bank's board. The CEO said in the announcement the importance of Lieutenant Governor's relationships to the bank's expansion bl- plans. He said, quote, John brings an enormous amount of knowledge, relationship, and experience that will be beneficial to the board as we continue to grow our, fr- our franchise throughout Ohio, unquote. Uh, McComb said in a statement, requote, his calculation and strategic decision-making skills complement uh, our already diverse and accomplished board, unquote. Uh, Scott Pullins is a candidate for Ohio House, said Ohio law is clear and our current lieutenant governor should know better because he already serves in one more than one state position. As well, uh, he is the lieutenant governor. He also serves in another position, which I cannot remember off of the top of my head. Oh, here it is. He backs Innovate Ohio, an agency that was created just after he took office. Houston also serves on the board of the holding company that owns Heartland's Bank, as well as the banks himself. So we, oh, he sits on two different bank boards at this point. No public official or employee shall solicit or accept anything of value that is of such a character as to manifest a substantial and improper influence upon the public official or employees with respect to that person's duties. That is Section 102.03 of Ohio Revised Code. Are you telling me that a sitting lieutenant governor is joining a bank board where he has a clear conflict of interest while the sitting governor is owning stock in a company that's coming to the state? Are you telling me that you can look at this this group of people and say, you know what? You know what, folks? I'm going to cast my ballot for Governor Mike DeWine. I'm going to cast my ballot for Lieutenant Governor John Houston because these people are making Ohio great again. The amount of conflict of interest inside of this administration is unbelievable. Unbelievable. And when these financial disclosures that are required comes out and we see how much Houston is being paid we will do another report on that. We will do another story on that. We will do another episode on that because that is major. Being paid however much is major, right? That That's a major part of the story. He already has a conflict of interest. He already has the... Okay, could you imagine? I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change my thoughts here. You are the owner of a coffee shop and you have three owners of that coffee shop and one of the owners is vacant. So you decide to appoint the owner of Starbucks to your to your owner board, right? So now you have the, the group of Starbucks, which you have their insider information to make your bank a little better or make your coffee shops right, a little better. And then when Starbucks decides how they want to regulate other coffee shops, let's say, let's say this is a, a, a hypothetical where Starbucks is the government, is the coffee government. And they get to regulate the other coffee shops. Well, their owner is on Coffee Shop A's board, so they're going to make ca- Coffee Shop A a little better of a deal than coffee, coffee Shop B. You see how that works? There's a major problem. Serving on two public-funded 
boards already is a problem or two fu- publicly funded jobs is a problem already. Adding on top that two different boards in the same bank being paid for both of those. I just, I, I can't, I, I can't, I, I cannot stand by that. I cannot say that we can just let this happen. We can just let this happen with it, with just shooing it under the rug. And I'm sorry I didn't bring that out. I'm sorry I didn't mention it before, but I just, it came to the top of my head. I had to mention it. If you want to read the full article, it will also be in the show notes below. But one last story for today, and then we are going to go off the air. Ohio's legislative primary is set. The lawmakers do not know how they're going to pay for it. A federal ruling on Friday sets up an August 2nd primary for Ohio House and Senate districts using maps that were ruled unconstitutionally gerrymandered in March. Now lawmakers are deciding how to pay the estimated $20 million cost of that vote. Senate President Matt Huffman said he thought that the money could come from federal COVID dollars, but he said they're restricted. You can't do that. They have to be general revenue fund funds. Huffman said that he thought COVID dollars could be used because census data to draw the maps was delayed because of the pandemic. The first maps were approved by Republicans on the Ohio Redistricting Commission in September. Those in four subsequent Republican-approved maps were all ruled unconstitutional. So they basically reproposed the old maps. The court struck them down, struck them down, and then a federal court said, "Yeah, just run with those maps. No one cares really anyway." But the failure for the redistricting commission to to do their job to draw complacent maps. I don't like the maps they drew. I don't like the the gerrymander, so to speak, that they drew, which brings more Democratic districts than than are actually there. Right? I don't like that. But when you have a court order saying you have to do something, you can't just stick your nose up in the air and say, I'm not going to do that. The court doesn't rule for me. We have separation of powers. The court doesn't get to decide what I get to do. I'm going to put my nose up in the air and just not pay attention to it. You don't, get to do, you don't get to do that. That's not something you can do. And going around the Ohio Supreme Court, I'm thank goodness that Maureen O'Connor is gone so we can have fair maps in two years. But still, the failure of the administration of the DeWine board on redistricting is a major problem. That, that was a major failure. But not knowing how to pay the, for this election is also a major failure. And that's a major problem, and, and it's going to come out of your pockets. If you're an Ohio taxpayer listening to this, and you wonder why taxes are going up, it's because of this election. It wouldn't surprise me if, if taxes have to go up. I want to read a tweet to end off the show today that I posted yesterday. Just saw gas for $4.79. Now, for those of you in, like, California, that's $4.79. I'd fill up every tank I have. That's the highest I've seen it in my lifetime. $4.79. You know how much of that is gas tax? Let me see if I can find the the tax sticker. I took a picture of it. Here it is. 38.5 cents of gasoline is the state of Ohio state gas tax. Governor Mike DeWine, if you're listening to this, and I talked about you a lot today, so I hope you are. If you're listening to this, repeal your gas tax now. Save your average Ohioan now. 
It's beyond time. My name is JP Josh. This has been the Conservative Crusader on the Red Feature Radio Network. Be back tomorrow with a brand new episode. Stay tuned. You're listening to the Conservative Crusader.